So we're going through Acts, and we're on Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at verses 23 to 31, and uh, I'll read it for us. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The, earth, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is a word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you just for your word and we pray that in this time you would help us to um, receive that word and receive your spirit. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit and perhaps prompt us uh, and urge us as a community to engage you uh, in deeper communion, to depend upon you uh, through, through prayer. Uh, give us this conviction today. Uh, give us a conviction of uh, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going through a series uh, on the book of Acts, and Basically, it's just about the work of the Holy Spirit as the church starts. Uh, and this happens soon after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus dies, he resurrects, he spends some time uh, with his disciples and with people. And then after his ascension, he sends the Holy Spirit. And now we see the Holy Spirit moving and working in the book of Acts, doing some powerful things. And uh, just to give you a reminder, it's, I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts. We're still in that story where, uh, you know, Peter heals this lame man who can't walk, this 40-year-old man, and the series of, of events that transpires because of that. So after this man is healed, uh, you know, it causes a big commotion, as, as you would expect. And then uh, Peter and John, they're arrested, they're questioned, eventually they're released from jail. And after they're released from jail, uh, this is the part we are on in this passage and uh you know understandably people who follow jesus they're they're a little spooked by what just happened because this is like the first instance of persecution and for us i think whenever we read or hear about stories of persecution uh, i'm not sure it registers with us uh because we don't typically experience the same kinds of things here in the west i think maybe the worst that uh Christians in New York might face is like ridicule maybe or like insult, but uh, I don't think anybody's really been arrested um, or, you know, or worse killed because of on account of your faith. And so, you know, if someone really threatened you to stop talking about Jesus, I think it would really shake most of us. And especially if they had the power to maybe take away your property, if they had the power to ruin your social status, if they have the power to take away your freedoms, if they have the power to even take away your life. 
hearing some kind of threat like that would, I think, again, really spook us. And uh, we read about some of those things happening later when Stephen is stoned to death. But if you're part of this early Jesus movement, and if you're being threatened to stop talking about Jesus, the question is, how are you gonna how are you gonna feel? And very naturally, people feel afraid. Um, <clears throat> Last week, it actually fits in pretty well with uh, this sermon, but last week, Pastor Ben came and he spoke on Psalm 3, and he talked a lot about fear. And one of the things he said is that fear is, is a powerful force, and I think we all understand that fear is a very powerful force. Fear oftentimes causes us to do things that we shouldn't do, and fear causes us to not do the things that uh, we ought to do, right? So, for example, if you know you should, like, confront somebody, fear might prevent you from doing that. If uh, you want to ask for a raise, fear might prevent you from doing that. Uh, if you want to change your career, fear might prevent you from doing that. But fear is not entirely a bad thing because fear is the part of us that can really protect us and preserve us. So if you have a fear of getting hurt or if you have a fear of dying, that's not entirely a bad thing because maybe it protects you from taking unnecessary risks. And... It's not as though like those fears go away just because you're a Christian. Christians are, of course, impacted by the same kinds of fears. But the most important thing is that uh, <clears throat> there are more important things than things like self-preservation. And when fear gets in the way of some of these more important things, then that's when fear actually becomes a problem. So here, the more important thing than self-preservation is the mission of the church is the preaching of the gospel. And I imagine maybe that sounds a little bit radical to the average New Yorker, but it is true. And I don't mean to be too reductionistic, but if we believe that Jesus is the hope of the world, if we believe that Jesus is salvation, if we believe that Jesus is the one who gives life, then what could be more important than the mission of the church, the preaching of the gospel? And that's why persecution and ridicule are really powerful tools that prevent the gospel from being preached. Uh, I remember talking to a person many years ago about, you know, how hard it, like, how it was just, like, so hard to even admit that they were a Christian at work. And so people at work, they would just kind of always make fun of Christians as, like, backwards and not intelligent and bigoted people. And, of course, in recent years, uh, usually people think about Christians as the media portrays Christians and associated with, like, a certain politic and things like that. And, <coughs> you know, if that's how people uh, think about Christians, then, of course, like, you wouldn't want to be associated with Christianity for the sake of self-preservation. Uh, I was part of a book club many, many years ago, and uh, the same thing happened. People were, like, one of the books we were reading, like, touched upon themes of resurrection. And so, you know, people in the book club, they were talking about how, I can't believe, like, people in the world actually believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And they didn't know I was a pastor. And so I raised my hand and I said, well, I'm a Christian. And I actually believe Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, I think they felt a little bad because like, oh man, did we insult him? But uh, I, don't, I don't think that uh, anyone could possibly, <clears throat> I don't think they thought that anybody could possibly believe in a miracle like that. And so they were just kind of speaking freely. And I didn't want to let them get away with like thinking these things without at least challenging some of these ideas and saying, hey, it is actually intellectually defensible to believe in the resurrection. Now, what's remarkable about this prayer is 
they could have prayed, God, make these Jewish leaders go away, right? Make these Jewish leaders stop, <coughs> stop bothering us. God, make it easier for us to preach this gospel. Give us some more wealth. Give us some more political power so that we can do what you want us to do. And I think that's like a very linear way that people oftentimes think. But they don't pray like that. They don't pray, change our circumstances. Rather, what do they pray? They pray like this. They say, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And that tells you everything you need to know about what they thought they needed in that moment. In this moment, they weren't asking for a change of their circumstances, but they were actually asking for greater strength, to be bold in the face of opposition. They were asking for courage. They were asking God to make them courageous people. And this was a special moment because the church was, of course, just starting. The Holy Spirit had come down at Pentecost. Thousands of people were repenting and believing in Jesus. And they knew that in order to be faithful, they had to overcome their fear. And they had to be bold. They had to be a bold people. And so how do they pray? First thing they do is they address God and they address, and that address relates to whatever they are praying for. So they lift their voices together and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything uh, in them. They're praying and they're addressing God as Sovereign Lord. They're saying, God, you are the one who created the entire world. Therefore, everything is under your control. And then they go on to recall Psalm 2 where it says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the way that they apply this psalm is they, they look at what happened to Jesus. Uh, you had guys like Herod and you have people like Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles, along with the people and the people of Israel. They're all gathering against Jesus, against God's anointed. But then in verse 28, they know that it was all done according to the plan of God. And so they look at what's happening to them in the, the situation, and they know that it's also part of God's plan because it happened to Jesus. And what happened to Jesus was all a part of God's plan. Uh, if you believe that God is in control, if you really believe that, when you're in an unfavorable circumstance or situation, there's usually one of two ways that you can respond. Uh, if you're going through some kind of hardship and you believe you're experiencing that hardship according to God's plan, then you could get mad at God and you could blame God, right, for the situation. And I think that's probably why a lot of people struggle and eventually fall away from following Jesus. They're going through some kind of uh, hardship, some struggle, some health issue, some financial issue. They're just not happy with how their lives uh, turned out overall, and they say, God, if you're in control, how could you let this happen to me? You could respond in that way, or you could respond in this way and do what the believers in this passage did, and you turn to God in your troubles, and you draw strength from the fact that God is in control. Uh, that's, that's what they focus on as they pray here. Uh, they derive comfort and strength and they persevere because they know they turn to God as sovereign Lord and you know the way you go about this will largely depend on how much you trust God and how much you trust in his goodness uh, but let me say a few things as to why the sovereignty of God should be such a rich resource for us 
and why it should be such a source of strength for uh, the persecuted church. What usually lies at the core of things that make us afraid? Uh, why do we get afraid? Why do we allow fear to have access to the deepest recess of our hearts? I think it's usually because there is some kind of chaos or some kind of sense of loss of control that happens. I've been in one car accident uh, in my entire life. I just bought a, a car insurance policy and I was like, shouldn't it be cheaper? I've only been in one accident my whole life. One accident my whole life. It was a snowy day on Christmas Day. Uh, I had just gotten a new used car, uh, Nissan, a turquoise blue Nissan Altima. I was in college and I was coming back from church and it was snowing and the highways were all icy. So I was on the highway, I was changing lanes. I was going really slow too. I was going like maybe 40 miles per hour on the New Jersey Turnpike. And I was uh, changing lanes to get off the exit, but because the road was frozen, my car just kept sliding, right? So I'm like turning, I'm braking, nothing, nothing's happening. The car just slides. And if you've ever driven by like the Meadowlands, there's like swamp area and there's like these wooden fences. So I'm like, my sister was next to me and I was like, uh, like I had time to say this. I was like, uh, I think we're gonna crash. It's like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're crashing or we're going into that fence, right? So boom, we go into the fence. Uh, <clears throat> the car fills up with like all this nasty swamp water. Uh, yeah, my only accident in my life. By the way, they charge you for everything. So for that fence that I ran through, they charged me for that. So I had to pay for that fence. Anyway. <clears throat> uh, it's a really scary moment because you lose control, right? You, you can't move, you can't really do anything, you're out of control. And I think a lot of the core of our, our fears have to do with the fact that we're not in control. Why is it that the first thing people say in the midst of like a panic crowd is, we have the situation under control? Because they know that uh, they want to calm people down and they don't want like a bunch of like uh, fearful people kind of, you know, going a little bit crazy. They want to know that the situation's under control. Uh, even something as minor as the delay of a subway, it can be alleviated when you know what the reason for that delay is. So they say, hey, there's a signal problem or there's equipment problems or there's police activity. And it's like, okay, now I understand why uh, the subway is not coming. Uh, there's like these like little things that uh, we feel in our heart when we feel like we have like some kind of reason or explanation that tells us, okay, the situation's under control. It does alleviate our fears a little bit. And conversely, when we don't feel that sense of control, uh, that's when things start to fall apart. The way we usually try to remedy this in our personal lives is we say, I need to take control of my life then, right? Uh, I watched this Q&A with like one of the Shark Tank guys. Um, the bald guy, I think his name is Mr. Wonderful. And uh, he said that, you know, the reason to be successful and the reason to make a lot of money and the reason you want to be wealthy is not because you want all these material things, but ultimately at the end of the day, you want freedom. You want to be free from somebody else's agenda. You want to be free from somebody else's vision. You want to be free from somebody else's demands upon your time. And that's why you want to pursue wealth. And the way I interpret that uh, or what he's saying is this, the reason why you want to make a lot of money and be successful and be wealthy is so you can have greater control of your life, right? 
I think everybody eventually wants that. And I know there are certain seasons in life or certain kinds of personalities where it sounds attractive to maybe like, oh, let's go where the wind blows. But I think for the most part, people want some order in their lives. And I imagine that's part of the struggle of living in a place like New York where things seem to be changing very often and you're never sure, you know, uh, how long you're going to live here, how long your friends are going to live here. But you at least want control of that decision, which means you want to find maybe a better job that gives you, affords you more opportunities, or you want to find something that makes you feel like you have more choices, which makes you feel like you're in more control. And that's part of the reason why hardships rattle us. Uh, when something hard happens to us, when we go through suffering, when someone's health is in decline, uh, when someone's life is deconstructing, when there's a bunch of layoffs, when your career is failing, when the economy is so volatile, uh, whatever else you would define as hardship, it's hardship because it makes you feel like you're not in control. And that activates the fear in our hearts. I'll say this, even if we had the ability and the power to control everything in our lives, who's to say that our lives would turn out the best when it is in our control, right? That's like a very uh, presumptuous thing to assume, but we all assume that. That's the problem in the Old Testament. People did what was right in their own eyes, and I think a big part of the reason why things, uh, why people are falling apart through things like anxiety and depression uh, at a much higher rate than prior generations is probably because people are doing what is right in their own eyes. And they think, again, the assumption is, if I'm doing what's right in my own eyes, if I feel like I'm in control of my own life, if I feel like I'm in control of my own identity, if I feel like I'm in control of my future, then things will turn out. But I don't necessarily think that is the case. I think the answer for our longing for order and control is actually not going to be found within ourselves. I don't think uh, that's a realistic possibility, and even if it were, I don't think uh, that's where we find uh, the right answer, so to speak. The answer is found what we see in this prayer when they come to God as sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. When God created the world, he created order out of disorder. In the beginning of Genesis, it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And what it is, is it's a picture of chaos. What God's act of creation is doing is it's putting right, all that chaos into order. He separates light from darkness. He separates heaven from earth. And there's this common refrain that happens over and over again. There is evening. There is morning. And that common refrain is indicative of the fact that order has been established in God's creative act. If he can bring order out of chaos when he created <clears throat> when he created the world, then how can the chaos we perceive in our lives stand any chance to a God who is sovereign, to our sovereign Lord? It has to be under his control. And therefore, even though we may not know the reason for it, if we believe that God is creator, if we believe that God is good, if we believe that God is a sovereign Lord, then there has to be a orderly good purpose behind it. And we may never know God's reason for it, but the most powerful source of comfort is not going to be found in the reason anyway. The most powerful source of comfort is always going to be found in a person. 
That person comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That person also comes to us in Acts in the person of the Holy Spirit. But as this prayer alludes to, Jesus was also someone who experienced hardship according to the plan of God. Jesus' own very death and resurrection, his own crucifixion was predestined to take place. And if you think about the life of Jesus, he would be abandoned by most people, he would be betrayed by one of his disciples, he would be wrongly convicted in court, he would be beaten and flogged, and he would ultimately die an unjust death by way of crucifixion. Why? Yeah, um, we could say it's because of the Roman government, we could say it's because of the Jewish leaders, but ultimately it happens according to God's plan. When you look at what happened to Jesus in a vacuum, you would say, why would God do that? And it makes, of course, very little sense. But when you understand the result and impact of his death on the entire world, the entire universe, the entire cosmos, then you soon realize that the greatest victory came out of the greatest loss. The greatest light came out of the greatest darkness. The greatest joy came out of the greatest despair. And we get to share in that victory and the fruit of that victory, in that light, in that joy, because of what Jesus' suffering meant for us, because of what God had planned for Jesus. I do think the early church probably understood that, and they looked at what was happening to them through the lens of what happened to Jesus. In fact, when Jesus talked to his disciples, he tells them to expect right, these kinds of things to happen to them. And it's good that <clears throat> uh, they expected it, because the persecution, if we, when we continue to read the book of Acts, is only going to get worse. Uh, in a few chapters, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, would get martyred, spark a great persecution against the entire church in Jerusalem. But it turns out this great persecution uh, in the church uh, was used for God's purposes. And what it ended up doing was it scattered the people of God to all nations, and that's actually one of the reasons why the gospel spread and why Christianity grew amongst other nations. When the gospel spread, it crossed boundaries. Samaritans were saved. A man who was involved in the occult was saved. Uh, an Ethiopian eunuch was saved. And that only happened because great persecution came upon the church. So here's the thing. <clears throat> what the early church needed wasn't to be free from persecution. What they really needed was boldness to continue to preach the gospel in the face of persecution. And sometimes I, I do think our prayers are a little bit misguided, <coughs> a little bit misguided because we think, <coughs> we think God changed my circumstances. And I had a counseling professor, and he, he said this once. He wrote an article about prayer once, and he said, you know, if you look at all the prayers in the Bible, uh, most of them are not actually about God changed my circumstances. And I thought that was like a very profound point. Uh, I think what we really need uh, to reflect on with this prayer is maybe how it ought to guide our prayers. If fear is playing a big role uh, in our hearts and maybe hindering what God is calling us to do, then perhaps we should not pray, uh, God, make, um, I don't know, make these people stop bothering me or make the, I don't even know what we pray, right? <laughs> but maybe we ought to pray, God, in my heart, there's fear. God, in my heart, I want to be in control. Uh, God, in my heart, uh, I'm not relying upon you 
and your sovereignty. In my heart, I'm assuming that uh, the best place for me to be is in my own hands, whatever it is. And maybe we pray to God, God, change me. Make me bolder. Make me more courageous. Um, And I think that's something that this prayer teaches us. You know, I heard a pastor say once, uh, he was talking about generosity, and he he said something uh, that caught my attention. He said, Christians weren't uh, lacking in generosity because they're being greedy. What he says is, Christians are lacking in generosity because they lack courage. And I was like, huh, <laughs> like, why is he saying that? Uh, he was saying that because, he, he was saying this, uh, at the end of the day, people are not generous because they're afraid to give, because when they give, and especially if they give more than what they think is like safe to give, uh, they're afraid of what their life is going to look like without right, that certain amount of dollars. Uh, I think people are probably not building a community because of fear. There's a fear of rejection or fear of judgment, fear of commitment. Uh, I think these days the, you know, one of the great commodities is probably time. And it's like, well, if I give up this time to do this, what if it doesn't pay back, right? What if it doesn't yield the result that uh, I want it to yield? And then because of that, because of those fears, we don't do it. There's a whole lot of reasons. If we were really to dig down and peel the, the layers, I think uh, we would really see fear at the root of many of those things. But here's the thing that uh, we need to see in this prayer. I think this is one of perhaps one of the most encouraging things in this prayer. What happens at the end of this prayer meeting in verse 31, it says this, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit after this prayer meeting. Um, you know, there's like a shaking and then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's worth thinking about. You know, the Holy Spirit already came at Pentecost, so what does it mean that they were filled with the Holy Spirit? And I think the short answer is this. I think there are moments when we experience God in a very heightened way. I think some of, uh, you know, some of the folks who went on these summer trips, prayer trips, maybe know what uh, that experience is like. You come back, though, and you're different, and one of the ways you're different, I think, is Maybe you have a greater sense of boldness for whatever reason. Uh, everybody looks at you and you're like, oh man, why are you so like weird uh, all of a sudden, right? Why are you always talking about Jesus? Why do you always want to pray and worship? Uh, but for the people who experience that heightened sense of God's presence, uh, you don't care what people think about you. You just want to encounter God and you want people to encounter God. And there's a greater boldness. What is that greater boldness caused by? Um, I don't think it's necessarily circumstantial. I think it's just you experience the Spirit of God in such a heightened way. You feel the filling of the Holy Spirit in your heart, and it changes you. It just makes you bolder. That's what the early church needed. More than like change in laws, more than political power, they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is a very weird, interesting time I think just for churches in general uh, across, across the country. Um, I don't have statistics on this, but anecdotally, yeah, I've talked to so many pastors who are like leaving ministry. Uh, you know, you hear so many churches that are going through stuff, so many churches that are closing down. 
Uh, and it kind of makes you think, like, what is the future of Christianity? And for us, I, you know, I'm particularly concerned just about, like, this area in New York when all these things are happening. Like, what, what's going to happen? And I, don't, I actually don't think the solution is, like, oh, we need to build better seminaries. We need to get better admissions counselors to get people into those seminaries to produce better <laughs> pastors or any of those things. Uh, you know, church planting is all about, like, raising fundraising and raising money. And I, I don't think all the money in the world is actually going to make a difference. Uh, I really do think that what we need is more prayer meetings like this, uh, not because of the prayer meeting itself, but because of what God does through the prayer meetings. I think it's through prayer meetings where we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I think there is definitely a lack of these kinds of prayer meetings. And you know, just like I said a few weeks ago, uh, how are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Paul says in Ephesians, like one of the ways is uh, through singing. I think here we see another description of how one is filled with the Holy Spirit. We got to pray. <laughs> There's no way around it. We got to pray together as a community. And uh, if it's something uh, in our hearts that we long for to be filled with the Spirit, that if we actually care about the mission of the church, uh, if we actually live in fear because we don't want certain things to change or we don't want uh, certain things to happen or we don't want to feel like out of control or we don't want to feel like we, there's no stability, we don't want to feel disoriented, whatever our fears are, none of that is going to change unless God fills us with his Spirit. So, Here's what I will suggest. Um, let's do it now. Let's pray now. Let's pray that God would give us boldness. Let's pray that God would give us courage. Let's pray that uh, there would be a powerful filling of the Holy Spirit, uh, not for our sake, but for the mission of the church, which is ultimately more important than our self-preservation, more important than our comfort, more important than uh, the carnal things that we tend to focus on in this, uh, in this life. Let me ask some very pointed questions to guide our prayer. Uh, spiritually speaking, um, you know, where do you feel like you are in terms of your relationship with God? Uh, what do you think are some of the things that God may be calling you to do, but you're a little bit resistant to it? And where... Uh, how does fear play maybe into some of those things? Fear of giving up too much? Uh, fear of not having uh, the kind of life you think uh, you want to have? Uh, fear of, you know, giving of yourself to something that may not pan out the way you thought, the way you want, to make it worth your time or your effort. I will say this, God is bigger than uh, any of us and he knows more than any of us. And because of that, 
we have a very finite view of our own lives and of what's happening. And so the only recourse we have is uh, to turn to God in prayer and to ask Him to fill us with His Spirit, to make us bold people, to experience that presence. Uh, we have a mission, friends. Regardless of what our church looks like, how small, how big, how powerful, how weak, we have a mission. And it's not up to us to determine what that mission looks like. Um, but He does call us to pray, to come to Him in prayer. God, we pray the same ways that this uh, early church prayed and we come and address you as Sovereign Lord. You're the one who created all things. You're the one who creates order out of chaos. You're the one that's in control of all things. And uh, for some reason, anytime we try to grab control for ourselves and we don't live in uh, humble reliance upon you, and we try to order, um, you know, every detail of our lives. And, you know, we know you call us to order our lives in a certain way. But we also know that we can't order everything. And there are things beyond our control. And for those things, God, we, we want to depend upon you. For those things, God, we want to be reminded that you are the sovereign Lord. And... You know, one thing that we maybe don't feel in control of is the spiritual state of, you know, the places that we dwell, of the people uh, around us, of the churches around us, of our church even. And God, we, um, we lift that up to you and we pray, God, you would fill us with boldness and courage. You would fill us with your spirit and we, have a, we would have a deep sense of your presence and that we would be a people in mission more uh, than maybe more than we've ever known uh, as we've lived in this earth 
um, whatever moment we are in, whatever changes are happening in churches, um, the one thing we know is we need your spirit. And so we pray that you would give it to us in abundance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.